Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. When I mention the University of Connecticut, or UConn as it's also known as, the first thing you're probably thinking of is basketball. UConn basketball, championship after championship, legendary players and legendary coaches. See where I'm going here? The two are inseparable. Yes, UConn is an incredible school that sits in the picturesque farmlands of Eastern Connecticut, but the story of UConn basketball pulls at our heartstrings and is something us nutmeggers are passionate about. The trajectory and proud tradition of championship after championship is almost like a fairy tale, except this is very real. And playing a starring role in that story of UConn women's basketball is none other than our guest, Jennifer Rizzotti. She was there in the beginning of it all, winning the school's first NCAA championship back in 1995. From her days on the court as a Husky and later playing pro women's basketball, to coaching teams and being a Women's Basketball Hall of Famer, Jennifer shares her inspiring story of perseverance, how being competitive can lead to success, and the lessons she's learned on and off the court that has helped shape her into the person she is today. Jennifer is currently the president of the Connecticut Sun Women's Professional Basketball Team in the Women's National Basketball Association. But how did she get here? We're about to find out as we go one-on-one with Jennifer Rizzotti. Okay, so I always ask this question at the beginning of the show, where are you physically at this moment in time? Yes, well, I am physically in my office uh, at the Connecticut Sun. Okay, and where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Connecticut, um, almost the opposite end of the state from where I currently am. I grew up in the western part of Connecticut, right on the border of New York in a town called New Fairfield. New Fairfield, out near New Milford, Litchfield, Bantam. Danbury, yep. Yeah, I grew up in the Torrington area, so I know that area sort of well. It's it's lots of woods. Um, It is. (laughs) (laughs) And what would you say that life was like growing up there as a kid? Um, It was pretty relaxed. I mean, it was, uh, you know, kind of typical... um, suburban town, probably middle class, I'd say. Uh, A lot of uh, parents who worked in New York, so it was an easy place to kind of settle and raise a family. Um, You know, medium-sized school system, you know, pretty, you know, good, maybe average to above average sports. Um, You know, I think it was a a kind of a typical Connecticut childhood for me. Okay. And as a kid, did you always want to play basketball or sports or what were your aspirations? Yeah. Well, I definitely wanted to play sports. Like I was in everything. So I have a brother who's 11 months older than me. So we're Irish twins. And that just meant that like I had to play on every sport team sport that he played on. So my dad could coach the both of us at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I grew up playing soccer and baseball and basketball. I did track. I mean, pretty much, you know, any sport that I could dabble into, um, I did and normally played with the boys. So definitely kind of got a little bit of an edge having to play with older boys as I grew up. And when, when would, when did things click 
like with basketball out of all of those sports was, was that the one you were the best at um i don't know i i don't I, I I was soccer, soccer, soccer growing up. You know, mm. I think it's because it was a sport that was easy to play when you're younger. And um, I loved it. I played that through my freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball, I picked up a little bit later. And I kind of started to fall in love with it in middle school. So I actually uh, came, I was homesick one day from school in fifth grade. And my dad came home from work and said that we were moving to Japan. Um, so I spent middle school in Tokyo, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Um, and so I played a lot of sports over there with my brother, but but when I came back in the summer to visit family in the U S my parents would let me go to basketball camp at West Point. So I think it was during that time where I think I started to realize I was actually pretty good at it and better than any of the other girls at camp. Um, I love the intensity, the fast pace of it. So I just started to shift probably seventh and eighth grade to having basketball be my favorite sport. Um, I ended up playing volleyball. Uh, when I moved back to the States, I had to choose between volleyball and soccer. I chose volleyball. So I kind of gave up soccer and just kind of went full steam ahead and with basketball and volleyball in high school. Okay. And, you know, I always ask a lot of the business leaders we have on the show, what sports taught them, because they were like amateur, you know, high school or middle school players. Um, but I'm really curious in hearing this from from you, right? You're an athlete, and then you were a coach, and and now to your current position. But what? It's such an open-ended question. But what has sports taught you? It is a very open-ended question because obviously, it taught me a lot of different things along the way. You know, when I was younger. I think it gave me a sense of confidence. Um, and part of that came from my parents um, letting me believe that I could do anything, that I could play with the boys, that I could play any sport, even if girls weren't playing it, that I could be the best at it, you know, even though I was smaller, you know, younger and smaller than everybody. So it gave me a sense of confidence, but also, you know, forced me to, to understand that I had to work hard to be successful. Um, so I, 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 at a young age was able to create a really strong work ethic, um, because I wanted to be the best at everything that I did. And that translated to school and what I was doing in the community and, you know, just preparing myself for college. And, you know, as I grew up, I mean, I had a lot of different coaches, a lot of different mentors and and people in my life that, that taught me about leadership, um, taught me more about teamwork and what that actually meant and, and being unselfish, um, you know, and, and I think for me, it's like every every phase of my life and every year that I coached or played basketball led me to being able to essentially run a professional basketball team on the business side. So although I don't maybe have the practical qualifications and experience as a front office person, uh, I feel like all of those qualities has translated really well for me to become a, a great leader in the organization. And I think um, that's what's most exciting about the job is being able to lead in a different way than I ever have. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you said some. You said something that kind of struck a chord with me um, because I was a swimmer in in high school, and you know it's such an individual sport, and you sort of beat yourself up when you either have a good day or or when you have a bad day. Um, but you know you're always in. You, you learn the things about teamwork and mm-hmm. you know things like improving you know your swim time and stuff like that but I never really thought about 
you know, the mentorship aspect of it, right? The, the coaches and the people you meet along the way that can propel you even further or, or make you think about other skill sets. Yeah. So that, that was just really interesting. Um, so going back to uh, New Fairfield, what, what did your parents do for work? My dad worked for IBM. So that was where he got, you know, he worked in Poughkeepsie, New York for a long time. And, um, you know, in 1985, they, I think they gave him the option of either doing like a foreign tour mm. for a couple of years or actually moving and, and working in North Carolina. And so he chose to do the three year foreign tour. And we ended up going to Japan and staying for four years and then moving back to New Fairfield for the rest of my high school career. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom, so she probably worked twice as hard cause she had four kids at home and she was like everybody's room mother. So she did, you know, essentially all the work that people actually get paid for now as teacher's aides, my mom was <laughs> doing for free when we were growing up for four different classrooms. So, um, she was super involved in, in a lot of volunteer work and just making sure that we all got from one sport to the next or one piano lesson to the next. And, uh, you know, but was very busy because my brother's, like I said, 11 months older than me. My sister's eight years younger and then I have a brother in between. So she had a lot of mouths to feed and schedules to keep track of. I have two kids and I don't even know how she did it with twice as many. <laughs> you put the cape on and you do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's interesting. You went to um, Tokyo. Was that like a culture shock when you went there? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, obviously, none of us wanted to go, but we loved it. Um mm. We, at the end of three years, my dad asked if we wanted to stay for a fourth and we all said yes. Um, there was a sense of, um, you know, independence that we had, a sense of like, you know, viewing the world a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my brother and I took the train to, to school every day about an hour by ourselves at, you know, 11 and 12 years old. So, you know, we kind of just had our own little lives out there. We went to school, we stayed afterwards for sports, we went home together and, you know, we were able to visit um, other countries while we were there because everything in Asia was closer, yeah. you know, so we were able to go to Hong Kong and Korea and Thailand, Malaysia. We visited, you know, a, a lot of the, the countries in the Far East. So um, travel that we never would have been able to probably have time for or afford, um, you know, we were able to do because we live there. Um, you know, we went to an American school, but we experienced a lot of different cultures in our school. There was a lot of Japanese students that went there that spoke English and then a lot of other students from around the world. Um, so basically, as long as you spoke English, you could go to our school. And so we met a lot of different people from a lot of different countries. Um, so it was it was hard to come back, you know, to a small town, sure. but it was a great experience. I still got to play sports. Um, the academics, we were ahead academically when we came back. So it was an excellent academic school. Um, and, you know, we just kind of were able to live our lives in a way that was very different than being in a, a small town where your parents had to drive you everywhere. You know, we could take the train, yeah. the subway places, we could ride our bikes around the city. Uh, we just had a level of independence that most kids, you know, unless you live in a city that don't have. Yeah, no, for sure. It's interesting. I, I, I haven't made it to Tokyo. I hear it's like sensory overload from friends who have been. But also, like, I've done a lot of traveling throughout Europe. And I, I think everyone should, every kid at some mm. age, it should be a part of a high school curriculum, like, just to mandatory, like, go somewhere outside of the country. So you could see that, yeah. like, wow, there's there's other types of people and other kinds of food and culture and just a different way. It's a real yeah. eye-opening experience. Um, 
So, but, you know, back to your parents, um, wh- what kind of values did your parents instill in you, in you that, that you still carry with you today? Well, definitely I got my work ethic from both my parents. Um, you know, they're, they're super hardworking. They still are. They're 75, 75 and 72 and they're nonstop. You know, mm. they come over to my house and it's like if there's a, you know, load of laundry to be done, the laundry gets done. If there's wood to be chopped, the wood gets chopped. Like Dad helps they're out, not, right? They're like the best parents and grandparents you could ask for yeah. and they're go, go, go. So I definitely got this sense of like, achievement and wanting to be successful and wanting to work hard from both of my parents. They're both very competitive. I never knew that about my mom until I went and played mini golf with her. And she was like cursing up and down the mini golf course because she was losing. And I was like, mom, you're so competitive. Like, cause we never saw her in that setting. You know, my dad was always, you know, automatic QB and automatic pitcher and always out in the yard playing sports with us. But both my parents were really competitive, really striving for greatness. Um, and then just a sense of accountability, you know, like, you know, I think about, um, you know, I joke about my difference between my husband's like high school career, mine, like how strict my parents were and how free he was to do whatever he wanted in a, a single, you know, household, single mom household. Um, and, and I, I just think about back to then, like all the decisions that I made, um, because I was, you know, constantly reminded about consequences, you know, like decisions you make result in consequences and they can be good or bad and that's your choice. Mm. Um, and so I, at an early age had a great work ethic, a drive to succeed. I was competitive, but I also learned how to make good choices and had a really high level of accountability for my own success. And that, that I had before I ever went to play at UConn. And I, and I definitely credit my parents for that. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, even if though your mom wasn't like playing sports, she has that competitive spirit in her. So yeah, that's where you get it from. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, so I, I think everyone knows, well, for those that don't know, but I, I think everybody listening will know that you went to UConn for college and were a starting point guard for the Huskies. How did you ar- arrive at UConn? Were you recruited? Was it a school you always wanted to go to? Yeah, you know what? I, I, it wasn't, I really didn't think about college. UConn wasn't like it is today where if you were a basketball player from anywhere you wanted to True. go. So yeah. especially if you were from Connecticut, it, it didn't have that reputation quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Gino had started about five or six years before, you know, I was in that recruiting age. I moved back from the end of my freshman year. I moved back to, to new Fairfield. I knew nothing about colleges or recruiting. So all of a sudden I'm playing high school basketball. I start playing AAU after my sophomore year and this recruiting process starts much later than it normally does for people. So um, I really just started to think about college when, when coaches started to call and I narrowed my list down to, you know, division one schools that were within a few hours of home. Um, I ended up visiting Providence, um, Rutgers and UConn officially for the weekend spent time with each team, we each coaching staff, watched practice, got a sense of where the players lived and what they did for fun. And as much as I loved all three schools and the, and the coaches there, I, ju- I, I could feel that UConn was on the precipice of greatness. I mean, mm. not, I didn't, I couldn't foresee what it has become, but you could feel it. Like there, Rebecca Lobo had just arrived and they had come, they had just come off of their first final four appearance. they built Gamble Pavilion and they had this brand new, you know, arena that was, you know, great to practice and play in there. You know, Gino's, you know, just a great motivator. So he, he pushed the right buttons. He sold the right vision and 
it was kind of a no brainer for me at the end of the day to, to go there. I felt like it was a, it was the right fit. Um, and I was obviously right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, we could do a whole show on, you know, UConn, like what it was for yeah. basketball and where it is today and just how much the school has changed and, and so forth. But, you know, you, so just to touch on that, you led or were a part of that team that mm-hmm. led the, the women's basketball team to its first national title, um, you know, back in 1995, I believe, yeah. um, which is, you know, a proud tradition that has continued for such a long, 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 long time. I mean, you say the word UConn, everybody's like basketball. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what was it like winning that first championship? Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to put words to it. You know, I think, um, I think any person that's been part of something like really, really special, you know, like you, you, it has a feel to it when you talk about it, but it's always hard to like really, you know, describe, you know, we had a great group of women. Um, we were all really close. Um, we worked really hard. We were really unselfish. Um, I don't think any of us thought we were going to go undefeated that year until probably like February. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, oh, wow, we're about to do this. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, to, to be kind of slated as an underdog, even though we were the number one ranked team in the country, I don't think anyone still really believed that we were going to win. It was kind of fun, you know, to prove everybody wrong and um, to go into the NCAA tournament, you know, as, you know, the number one seed, but not really favored to win and just kind of stay together as a group and, and, prepare the way we had all year and trust each other and play for each other. And, you know, when you do that over the course of six months and you have the end result that everybody dreams about, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain the feeling of that. It's just this, um, elation and relief, you know, the satisfaction that you, you know, accomplish what you set out to accomplish and, and you feel validated. Like this is the reward for all the sacrifices that we made, to be here. And so many college athletes make similar sacrifices and put in the same time and the same work. And so you feel special to be the one that actually comes out on top because you, you know how hard it is. And I think that the next year, my senior year, it, it proved how hard it was because it's not easy. It's not easy to win. And to, th- to think that UConn's done it 11 times um, is, is just amazing. It's unheard of. It's that it puts them in a category by themselves, in my opinion, because if you are, if you've ever coached the game or any sport, you know how hard it is to have that level of sustained success. And so, just really impressive, impressive what Gino has done, and um, with different players in different decades to be mm-hmm. able to continue at that level. Yeah, because the 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 teams, the, all the other teams are trying to do the same thing. So yeah. it's yeah. not, you know, but I mean, it is. It, it you know, to me, it's like magic, right? All these things just align, and there's this, yeah. you know. Thing that just happens and everything clicks. I mean, it was a perfect record and, you know, the first championship and, you know, the camaraderie and all of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, your stats as a player were incredible. Um, you know, what, what's the story behind that? Is it just practice makes perfect? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of everything, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I was the one that was in the gym all the time. I and mean, if you ask, like, anybody that played with me or any even men's players – that were at UConn at the same time, who was in the gym the most, they would tell you it was me. So I had to be, I was five, five, right. Mm -hmm. So I'm shorter than everybody. And I had to work twice as hard. I also, 
Um, that was kind of my, you know, what I was known for was my work ethic and my heart and my passion. Right. So I put a lot of work into it, but you know, you said something like, uh, earlier, like stars align, like uh, stars had to align too. Like I went to UConn at the right time. You know, mm -hmm. I, I broke the assist record cause I had Rebecca Lobo and Carol Walters and Jamel Elliott to pass to, you know, so you play with good players. So yeah. your stats are better. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm, you know, it, I think it's pretty unheard of. I, my my senior year, I was named the AP National Player of the Year, and I think I averaged like 11 points a game. You know, nowadays, coaches don't recognize and media don't recognize players for the impact that they have like they used to. You know, like now to be the player of the year, you got to be like one of the leading scorers in the country. Mm -hmm. You know, and back then there was just recognition of me being the most important player on the best team in the country. And we had great players around us, so I didn't need to score 17, 18 points a game. Um, but I was able to play play a lot for a long time with great players. And so, you know, obviously it's a lot easier to leave a place with a lot of points and a lot of assists and steals when your team is really successful. And I think I used to always tell my my players that when I started coaching is the individual awards will come if you can drive your team to a high level of success. And so I always like to credit my coaches and teammates for all the individual accolades I had because I wouldn't have had them if we weren't the best team in the country. So I think it goes without saying that you need to be good enough to lead your team to success in order to have, you know, the individual awards as well. Mm, very interesting. And, you know, this is kind of a double question. Um, you know, what did, what did you learn from the team but at the same mm -hmm. time, what, what did you learn from Coach Gino Oriyama? Yeah, uh, I, I learned a lot about leadership in my time at UConn. You know, it wasn't something I set out to learn about. It wasn't something that I thought, oh, I'm going to need this later in life. But it was very natural as a, a young player that was the point guard starting as a freshman um, on a you know pretty good team that I had a lot to learn about what it meant to motivate, uh, how to talk to people, you know, how to have the patience when I needed to have patience and how to, you know, push buttons to get people to play at the level of my expectation. Um, it wasn't easy. I, I remember Gino telling me that I needed to do a better job of getting to know my teammates if I wanted them to respect me and listen to me. So a lot of relationship building I learned about, um, that, that players respond differently to different types of, you know, tone yeah. and, you know, criticism. I knew who I could yell at and I knew who I had to soften the message for. Um, but I also had to leave from the front. So I had to be the hardest worker. I had to be in the front in the sprints. I had to, you know, make sure I passed all my conditioning tests. Like I always believe you can't lead from the back. So I think I, I tried to be a leader by example. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to get to know my teammates enough that they knew that my level of intensity and passion was just part of who I was. It wasn't a, you know, personal attack on them. So if I grabbed them in a huddle and started r ripping on them, they, they understood what, where I was coming from because they understood who I was as a person. So, um, but I had to learn a lot about patience and about how to treat people and how to talk to people. Um, obviously it prepared me for college coaching. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think that, you know, people ask all the time, is it hard to, you know, was it hard to be a coach when not everybody plays as hard as you? And I'm like, but I played with players that didn't play as hard as me and I still had to lead them. So, 
you know, the challenge of coaching, the challenge of being a captain is to try and get players to play up to the level of the excellence that you, you expect as a leader. And that takes time to learn how to do that and to get people to trust you enough to, to be led. Yeah. Like how you, not everybody wants to be led. So they're not going to follow you if they don't trust you. And I had to work hard to earn that trust. Um, and, and my time at UConn taught me a lot about that. Very good. And okay. So you graduate UConn, right. And you played pro for the new England blizzard, um, which was the, the American basketball league. This was, um, as well as some other teams, but this was all way before the WNBA, um, was formed. What was that transition like from you yeah. know college to pro? Um, it actually was pretty seamless to be honest with you. Um, the, the ABL was, uh, we played in Hartford and Springfield mass. So I didn't even have to move. Like I, you know, Still graduated there. UConn, yeah. you know, stayed in Connecticut with my fiance at the time, or he was my boyfriend at the time, soon to become fiance and my now husband. Um, so I got to continue playing basketball, but this time now I was getting paid for it. So, you know, I was, a you know, it was nice to be, have some financial freedom, yep. um, you know, to sign some endorsement deals and, you know, make money off of autograph sessions and appearances. Um, but it also meant a greater responsibility to, um, the fans and the community in a way that we didn't really have to address as, as college athletes, you know, college, you're like, okay, go, go to class, show up to practice, play your game, maybe a little bit of interaction with the fans after, but you're a student athlete. When you play pro, you know, you're now, now you have a responsibility to, you know, be a role model, to speak in the community, to, um, you know, show up at events that are going to help draw attention to this new pro team and then this new pro league and make sure you're helping do your part to fill the stands. Mm -hmm. So I kind of learned a lot about that, you know, grassroots marketing mindset, um, connecting to a community and being more of a part of it instead of just a celebrity in it. Um, and so I, again, all lessons that had taught me well for a coaching career and are certainly benefiting me now, you know, as the president of the sun to, to understand the impact that professional athletes can have on fans in a community. And I learned a lot about that with the new England blizzard for sure. It's interesting. I think Steve jobs said it, you know, when you're doing something, you don't really realize it. And it's, it's only when you look back that you can see the dots connecting. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So, you know, you're a college player, college champion and pro player, and then, and then you did go on to coach. Mm -hmm. Was that, was that transition a challenge for you? In some ways, yes. Um, and in other ways I felt like I had prepared for it my whole life. Mm. You know, it's funny. Like I, I didn't have any intention of coaching. I was playing for Houston in the WNBA and the AD at Hartford called. I was like, well, I'm in, you know, I'm finishing up my season. She's like, I know, but when you're done, can you come and talk to me about this opportunity. And I, I first said, no, I just got married. I'm like, no, I, I just want to take the winter off. I need some time. And she said, just come and talk to me, you know? So, and she had worked at UConn when I was there. So I went over to Hartford. I met with her. She offered me the head coach position and I was driving away thinking, I'm probably never going to get this chance again. Like, what am I crazy? Like <laughs> she's offering me a chance to be a head coach. I was 25 years old. And, um, you know, she, she said, 
and do it for six months. If you don't want, you know, you, you're done, then I'll, I'll find a new coach in the spring, but I really need somebody. It's last minute. Yeah. And I think you'd be great. So, you know, I can remember not knowing a whole lot about, you know, running a basketball program. I hired a great staff. Um, I hired a woman that was a assistant coach for 13 years. So she, she knew how to taught me about recruiting and she taught me about, you know, t t trying to get t people to come to the games. And she taught me about how to manage a team. And, um, but when I stepped on the floor to actually coach in practice, it, it felt natural. It felt easy. It felt like I was born for it. Like mm. this is what I had worked for my whole life was to now be still be a point guard, right? I couldn't play on the court with them, but I could still lead them in the way that I led my teammates um, from the sideline. And then most importantly, what I realized was now I can have the impact on all of these women in the same way that Gino had his impact on me. So I think about my decision to go to UConn and how great of a decision it was and the impact that it had on my life. Now I could turn around and have that kind of impact on so many young girls' lives. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of 22 years, you know, it's close to 80 something players um, that I hopefully positively impacted in a way that, that Gino impacted my life. And so I, that's what I love the most about coaching. I was competitive. I thought I was good at it, but at the end of the day, you know, I could create an environment. I could prepare kids for life after college and life after basketball and create this extended family that just made, made me feel like my life was whole and made me feel like I was successful because of the relationships I was able to build and the impact that I was able to have. And that, and that's why coaching just felt so natural to me. You ever want to leave your office and get back on the sidelines sometimes with the sun? Is it tempting? Uh, yeah. Not, you know what? To be honest, not right now. Okay. I, uh, 22 years is a long time. It is. Um, college coaching is not what it used to be when I started. It's yeah. very different. The rules are different. The expectations are different. The kids and their parents are different. Um, the schools are different. Um, so the last couple of years was, was not a great experience for me. Um, and so having a break from it has been really healthy. Um, but still being able to be there and watch it and be a part of it and impact it in a different way, yeah. um, I think is, is kind of what's holding me over right now. Yeah. But you, you just to touch on the, the coaching, um, aspect again, you, you went to Tokyo for, as assistant coach for the most mm -hmm. recent Olympics, right? Yes. What was it like to be back there and what, what was it like to be coaching again? Did you? Did yeah. Um, it, you know, I'd, I had finished up at GW in March and then I had, um, a couple camps for the national team in April and, and, uh, May, uh, I was able to coach a, a America college team with Dawn Staley in June. So I actually was kind of coaching most of the summer. And so I remember saying to somebody, if this is my last time I ever coach, right. If this is like, if I never go back then at least an Olympic, hopefully an Olympic gold medal will be the, the finality of my coaching career, which yeah. isn't a bad way to go out. Yeah. Um, so I just tried to enjoy it. I tried to just embrace like every day, like the players that I was with, um, the work that went into it, like the preparation and the grind of getting like our team ready for Puerto Rico or Brazil in June or Japan and Australia in July, just, be as good as I could. Like the, the, the one thing with coaching with the Olympic team is that you're with the best players and the best coaches in the world. So your, your game has to be good, yeah. right? You, you can't leave anything, any detail out because they'll call you on it. So 
the level of like preparation and, and, uh, you know, just making sure that I was ready every day for these women and this coaching staff was a challenge. It was, it was wonderful. It was like one of the best experiences of my life. And, um, I can remember like the emotion when we finally won the gold medal of what that felt like because of how hard it was and the journey that we took to get there and how much work we put into it and having to do it by ourselves in Tokyo, no family, no fans, you know, just a group of us grinding it out for a month in a foreign country, you know, to kind of sustain this level of excellence that ha- was unheard of. And so it was a great experience. I loved every second of it. And like I said, if it's the last time that I ever coach in my life, maybe besides my son's AAU team, uh, <laughs> I'll feel pretty good that that's the way it ended. That's unbelievable. I mean, what a way to end it, right? Yeah. The, the gold medal. Um, yep. So congratulations on that. Um, Thanks. Okay, so we're going to definitely get back to more of, of, of what sports has taught you and shaped you to where you are now. But I, I want to learn a little bit more um, about you as a person, the choices you make, the things you do that make, you know, Jennifer Rosati, Jennifer Rosati. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so can you take us through your daily um, morning routine? Are you an early morning riser? Are you at your best late in the day? What, what's your morning like? Yeah, I'm definitely an early morning riser, but not by choice. Okay. Um, <laughs> like my kids have, um, six they leave the house oh for boy. school. Yeah. That's so, early. yeah. So the, the alarm goes off at six. Um, fortunately my husband is like up and ready usually by five fifty. <laughs> so I'm like the one that like drags out of bed by like 6:15 to like see if I can help. Um but you you know you, we're usually both up and and getting the kids out the door. Um I don't love it, not going to lie. If I could take an a little about an hour extra, I would. Um I'm probably more of like a late morning is like my my best time, you know, mm-hmm. like when I was coaching, that was like when I like to go work out you know, 10 30, 11 o'clock would come, let me go get a workout in before practice. So I like kind of like that 10 to 12 time frame. So it takes me a little while to get going. I've been trying to get myself to work out in the morning now that I'm a business person and go into the office ready to go at nine. Yeah. But typically I try to, you know, either get a quick workout in or maybe I just get 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 started with my day earlier and, and try and get down to the office by 8 30, 9 o'clock. Um, to get started with my day. But um, yeah, I would say I'm kind of a middle of the day t- sort of person because I don't like to, to, I like my evening and nighttime to just be pretty chill. I'm, I'm definitely on the same page as you. And what inspires you? Like, where do you find inspiration? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think like I'm, I'm, I would say like for me, I look at things as like, where's the challenge, right? Like where's, (laughs) where's the opportunity for me to be competitive? Mm. Um, that's kind of how my mind works. So if there's something that allows me to do that, then I'm inspired. So, you know, if I, this morning I had a, you know, sponsorship meeting, uh, I had to drive up to Boston for it. And it's like that, it's like that rush of like preparation to make sure I know what I want to say, to sell our product, to showcase who we are, to share my vision. 
you know, you have this rush of adrenaline to do it, you do it. And then you walk out of the office and you just feel like, you know, I crushed that. Like I got across what I wanted. It's kind of like when I was coaching, it was like a recruiting presentation. Like I had this kid and their parents sitting across from me. How do I tell them, you know, GW or Hartford is the place for them to come and play? How do I get to convince them to come play for me? Now my competitiveness is, you know, how do I get these, these companies to want to partner with us and showcase our product and be a part of what we're building and, um, give us a chance to like really, um, you know, you know, embrace the, the, the challenge of like uh, giving our players this platform, right. To, to be more than just athletes. Like the WNBA is so special. These women are so special. Um, who wants to partner with us to let us tell their story. Right. And so there's this competitiveness um, rush for me to be good at that, to, Mm. you know, to sit down and and look at, you know, our, our business plan and, and say, here's where we can be better. And, we're going to sell this many tickets and we're going to drive this much revenue through sponsorships and we're going to do this many community events every day. And so I've really challenged my staff to have, you know, a level of accountability and set goals for themselves that they can measure themselves on. And so I try to do that for myself too. And and that really, for me is like, and like, that's just how I tick yeah. is when I know I can bring my competitive drive to something and, and to surround myself with people that are really good at what they do, because I'm not good at everything. I don't know a lot about the business, but I know that I know how to, to share the vision. And I know that I know how to be passionate and I know how to be competitive. And so I can bring those qualities to almost every aspect of what I do on a daily basis. And, and I, and that inspires me. It, it, I, every day is different, you know, coaching, it was kind of the same Every day with this job, every day is different. I love that. There's a challenge to it, um, and I'm learning. I'm learning something new every day, and so I'm, I'm definitely inspired by this this new world that has been opened up to me. It's like taking that competitive. This is just going to sound like such a cheesy phrase, but I'll say it. It's <laughs> like taking that competitive spirit from the locker room to the boardroom. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, people say all the time like that, that, you know, they like to hire athletes because our skill sets are so transferable, right, to yeah. a workplace. And yeah. We know how to work with other people. We know how to lead. We know how to, 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 to lean in or to dig our heels in and get something done. We know how to perform under pressure, right? Like all of these qualities, like when we're having like three game home games in a week and we're scrambling to be ready, like, and put on three shows in one week, which is essentially what it is. It's three entertainment shows for us yeah. when we have a game night in, in pro sports. So it, there's a grind to that. There's a, there's a timeline, there's pressure, like that's where I thrive. And so I love the energy in the office. I love the energy of pro sports. Um, and I also, I still get to stay connected to the basketball side. I still get to have conversations with Kurt Miller, our coach about players and, building the team and what are we going to do in free agency and how are we going to like, you know, figure out the puzzle of the salary cap and, you know, who are we going to go after in the draft? And so I still get my basketball fix. And so I love that I get, I'm getting uh, the best of both worlds right now. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the things you said about, you know, all the things you do as an athlete. And then today it's like, Oh, presentation on Monday. No problem. We've we've got this. Like, don't, don't sweat it. You know? (laughs) So, um, okay. So you're, you're now the president of the Connecticut Sun basketball team. Um, 
what would you say your leadership style is like in this role? Yeah. Honestly, I don't know that it's a lot different than it's been as a coach. Um, I'm very open and collaborative. Um, you know, I'm confident that I, ha I will make the right decisions, but I like to get as much input and thought and collaboration from my staff before I make decisions. Um, I feel like, um, I have, again, I have a drive and a competitiveness to me, but I like to have fun. So I think I'm able to still create a really exciting environment in the office. Um, and most importantly, I let people do what they're good at. Mm. Um, you know, I hired a great VP of, of business operations, Amy Shear, who's been in pro sports for 30 years. Like she knows things that I won't learn in the next 30 years yeah. because she's been, entrenched in it for, for decades. So she, I let her do her job. I let her lead the people underneath her. I let her give me guidance on, you know, how to, pre to present something to a sponsor or how to market something or, you know, how we're going to sell tickets. Um, so I think it, it's just kind of always who I've tried to be is, is hire really talented, good, diverse, energetic, selfless people, and then let them do what they're good at. So um, I feel I feel really positive with the team I've been able to put together. Yeah, always I, I hear that a lot. Like surround yourself with great people, yes. and you know everything will will just sort of work itself out. But um, yeah. you know, in that role, what what would you say is your your greatest challenge as a leader? Yeah. Well, there's a, like I said, there's a lot that I don't know. So right now I'm, I'm challenging myself to learn as much as I can to reach out to some of the other presidents and COOs of, of the other teams in the league, but also in other sports organizations. Um, make sure I have a really, you know, uh, open mindset to yeah. grow. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities. So just making sure I'm patient, which is not a strength of mine um, in doing things the right way, you know, like we don't, we don't need to rush. We've got five, you know, five months before the players report back six months. So let's make sure we build out, you know, our off season plan the right way. So we're really ready when they come back. Um, so having a little bit of patience with that. And while I'm, I'm learning a lot about the job. All right, so I have two questions that are going to be opposite of each other. One is, I'll ask you the first one. Is there, you know, an accomplishment throughout your career besides winning the championship, that kind of stuff, but that, that has been the most rewarding thing for you or something that's just made you feel incredibly good about what you do? Yeah. Um, I think probably when I got inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, Mm. Um, you know, I, I think I was always proud of my accomp academic accomplishments in college. Like, you know, I was academic all American and, uh, I was a big East like academic player of the year. So there was always a sense of pride and being the best at both, you know, like I always wanted to be known as somebody who wasn't just a great basketball player, but someone who was, you know, put that amount of effort into everything she did. And so I'm definitely proud of those individual awards, but I think it's just, it's pretty validating, you know, when you are older yeah. and get that call to, to go into the hall of fame, you know, and you, 
you know, you're already honored and humbled, but then you go there and you're walking around looking at all of these people that are in this hall of fame already. And now you're, you know, one of, of those many, like, it's just an accomplishment. And I think sharing that, being able to share that with my family, um, my kids were, you know, at the time were eight and five. So they were there and, um, a bunch of my former players from Hartford came down to Tennessee to, uh, you know, be a part of the induction ceremony. Um, there was just a lot of like really positive feelings about it because of it, of, of when it was in my life too. It wasn't just that I got into the hall of fame, but I was, I think older and I was a mom and a wife and I was just appreciative of being able to share that with so many people that helped me get there. Yeah. Well, what I love about it is, you know, you're here to celebrate it. Like with, like you said, with your kids and your husband and your family, it's like, you know, some people don't make it until they're long gone. And it's like, you know, it's like, let's celebrate these things now. Okay. On the opposite end of that, um, Uh is failure, right? We're all afraid of failure because it's like, oh no. Um, but you know, it's really something to learn from. Um, and I think especially whether it's on the court or in a professional setting, like at work at the nine to five, failure could teach you things. So I want to yeah. ask like, what, is there a favorite, this just sounds crazy, but is there a favorite, <laughs> a favorite failure you have that was just like something you thought was like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, but it didn't work out. And what was the lesson behind that? Yeah. Well, nobody can have a favorite failure. Right? It's like the worst <laughs> two words you could put together, right? Like, yeah, come on. Yeah. Think of a different way to ask that question. Um, a colossal no, I, failure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it's funny because I, uh, you know, I look at my coaching record and it, it drives me nuts that I have as many losses as I, I do, right? You know, you're like, wow, how did I lose so many games? Like, yeah. you know, once I got it going, how did I not keep it going? Like, I and I talked earlier about this sustained level of success that Gino has had at UConn. And I'm like, you know, I think the more I coached, the more enamored I was with the fact that they were able to do that, like, because I understood how hard it was. Um, I always wanted to try and bring one of my teams to a sweet 16. I came close twice, was never, never able to do it at Hartford. And the decision to go to GW was because I thought that I could do it there. I yeah. thought that I could go to the A-10, bring a, a program that had 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 success in the you know 90s and 2000s, recruit a higher level player and go to a sweet 16. And I failed. I mean, miserably, like we, we, we won a championship my second year. So I did get to go to the NSA tournament, but you know, I, I made, probably made a few mistakes in recruiting. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there was a couple players that were in the program already that I didn't click with. And we never, once we won that championship, we were never able to, to go like, get it going again. And kept thinking like, you know, well, we had an injury or we're, you know, we graduated five guys that were really good. We're rebuilding. Um, but it just, it never really clicked for me at GW. And, you know, like I, I try to be really open with everybody about the fact that I got fired. Um, because I think like there's such like a stigma attached to that, right? Like nobody wants to admit it. Um, but yeah, like I, like the, that feeling is terrible. And like for what, you know, whatever the reasons were, cause of course I didn't agree with it. I felt like I did a really good job in a COVID year 
I was super supportive of my players. Most of them were really happy playing for me and we were building something special, but just wasn't the same timeline or vision that the AD had. And, um, that was really hard for me. And, you know, like I think about like, what could I have done differently? You know, it makes you start to question like what you did, decisions that you made. And, um, you know, I, I try to go back to the fact that like, if you, if you operate a certain way, if like, if winning is about how you do it and the process that you do it with versus just getting it done, then you shouldn't ever have a ton of regrets. And so I do think that even though I may have done things differently in hindsight, I still felt really good that like I had always operated with integrity. You know, I treated people the right way. Like I built the relationships like I always had and it just didn't work on the court at that institution. And that I was okay with that as much as it hurt. Yeah. I was okay with that. And the other thing that it did was open up the opportunity for me to be here. And if, if the Connecticut son had called me and I still had a job, I wouldn't be here. Like I wouldn't, it, I'm, I'm too loyal. Like I would have felt too guilty leaving GW and leaving my players. Yeah. And I would have stuck with my commitment to be their coach. And so I think like, you know, it, yeah, is it cliche to say everything happens for a reason or one door closes, another opens? It doesn't <laughs> always happen for everybody, right? Right. But I think what I, I knew in my heart was that I've always treated people right. I've built, I've networked across the game of basketball. Um, I don't burn bridges, you know, like I've got a great reputation in the game. I built a platform for myself to be able to give back to the game and I wasn't ready for that to be over. And so this opportunity came because I worked really hard, because I've treated people right, because I have a good skill set to do this kind of job. So I just felt like, yeah, it was failure for me to get let go. But at the same time, you know, because I always operated a certain way and because I always treated people a certain way, um, that luck came back around, right? Karma came back to me in a good way. And I was graced with another tremendous opportunity that I never would have considered. And so I just, I just like to think like, you know, yes, things happen for a reason and I had to trust the process and being the president of the Connecticut sun is part of my process right now. I want to touch on a couple things. Pandemic, right? It's been a crazy time for everyone. It's impacted everything, but nothing more than like events where people get together, right? You know, including sports. How were you guys getting out of that? Yeah, it's definitely been a challenging 20 months, you know, to be in sports. Um, you know, we didn't have any fans last college season. It was tough to navigate that mm. adversity for my players. You know, they were they struggled a lot mentally with having to play in an empty arena, not be able to go home. Um, and so, you know, that's where like a lot of my strength came from was knowing that I handled that well. I treated them well. I got them the resources they needed to get through a season, be successful. And, you know, then you, then you trans transition to pro sports and I get here and I'm told like, you can only have 25% capacity and you need to move like all your season ticket holders and spread them out. You know, can you imagine like, you know, how that goes over when someone's used to sitting like six rows up and now they got to sit like 25 rows up and their reaction to that. And you got to wear a mask and, you know, you can't, 
be on the court like you're used to. And so there was this challenge and this adversity of just kind of getting through May, June, early July and get to that Olympic break in July. Um, God, my team did such a great job being able to navigate through those challenges. Um, the Mohegan Sun Arena staff was tremendous in helping us, you know, just kind of keep the doors open and keep the season going and keep the players and the coaches safe, keep the fans safe, um, and, and make people still excited about, you know, our team, even though the arena wasn't full, the energy wasn't the same. Um, we were testing all the time. The players had to test every day, you know, Mm -hmm. the challenges of the logistics and the costs that's associated with trying to get that done. Um, so just a lot of kudos to my basketball staff for being organized and our trainers and our medical people and then a front office staff. So that Olympic break, although I was in Tokyo, you know, everybody else was here like taking a breath and just really getting ready for the second half of the season. Because when we came back from the Olympic break, it was doors open, Mm. you know, courtside seating was available, you know, like sitting in every seat was available. The arena could be full capacity. So it went from like, you know, a kind of empty feeling to, you know, people rushing in the door to, to get what they're used to. And so again, it was, it was exciting for the team, exciting for the fans. Um, obviously our team went on a 14 game win streak at the end of the year. So the product on the court was really good. Um, so it felt a little bit more like normal. Um, but you know, there's still challenges with like being vaccinated, showing test results, wearing a mask, um, keeping people feeling safe throughout the arena, throughout the casino. Um, I, I really kudos to the staff here for being like a plus in that, that feel that the making people feel like this was an okay event to come to. Like they weren't going to be at risk coming to a Connecticut Sun game. Yeah. I always say the fans are like the extra player, right? So with the yeah. ab- with the absence of the fans in the stands, mm-hmm. it must have been, you know, definitely a challenge. If you could give your 18-year-old self or your 21-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know now, yeah, what would that be? Oh, um... I think that I would, um, you know, just remind myself to kind of trust, trust the process and trust myself. You know, I think, you know, I, you know, coach for a long time and it was, it definitely had its moments and its challenges. And especially early on in my career, I was very impatient. Um, I had to learn, (laughs) I had to learn a lot about toning down, my intensity in a way that translated well as a leader. And, um, I wasn't always like patient in, you know, wanting to, you know, wait for it to be, you know, get done the right way. So I think I would just kind of, you know, remind myself to, to trust it, to keep doing the things the right way, treat people the right way and let some of the stress behind it go. Um, Mm. you know, I think one of the reasons I'm happy to have a break from coaching is because I, I, there was too much stress involved and and maybe that's every coach, you know, it's probably is, but it would been, it would have been nice if I enjoyed it a little bit more at times because it could be, it could be a grind. Um, and I think that's why it's hard to stay in it as long as I did. And as long as some people do. Okay. Final question. There's a podcast, another podcast I listened to on NPR. Um, 
and the host asks this question. So I'm stealing it, I'm borrowing it, whatever we want to call it. I'm inspired by it. How's that? Um, how much of your success has been pure luck and how much is it from your leadership and abilities and intelligence? Yeah. Um, well, I always believe that the harder you work, the luckier you get. You know, I know that's a quote. I, I don't know if it's from my husband will kill me for not knowing who it's from, but, um, that's always been my motto. So like, I don't believe that you get lucky if you don't work at it. Mm. Like I think it follows you. I do. And so I think that my timing in life has been pretty remarkable. Like I, you know, when, when I was born and when professional basketball started and when the Hartford job opened, I'm not going to lie that there's times where I, I think about how remarkable timing is of when I was brought into this life. But I do think luck has followed me because of the work that I've put in to everything that I do. And so I would, I would have to say that the hard work, the intelligence, the leadership comes first. And if you do that right, then you're going to get lucky. And you do need luck. Trust me, I've needed it. I know it's part of the game. I know it's part of life. But I think if you bring good karma to yourself because you do things the right way and you work really hard, you're, you're, that's, that's just naturally going to happen for you. Amazing. I, I think that's the right place for us to uh, leave off. Um, I always ask, do you have any final words or anything um, you'd like to add before we go? No, th thanks for having me on. It's always fun to, to take a stroll down memory lane and kind of remember where I came from and you know, it's all, it's all inspiration to me to like be even better in, in the next phase of my life and in this job and in the, in the lives that I can impact going forward and the communities that I can impact. And, um, you know, you just, you made me really excited to, to get back at it. So thanks for the, for the conversation. There we have it. That's Jennifer Rosati, the president of the Connecticut Sun. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and perhaps have learned a thing or two that you can apply in your own life. One thing Jennifer and I touched on during our conversation was how important sports and sports organizations are to the community, and the Connecticut Sun is no exception. There are some incredible programs the Sun is involved in, including Change Can't Wait, that creates positive change for all marginalized groups with a focus on black and brown communities within Connecticut and New England through year-round partnerships, advocacy, events, education initiatives, and materials and player appearances that move to eradicate systemic racism and oppression. There's also a Connecticut Sun and Swarm basketball partnership that further extends youth basketball programs into the community and so much more. For more information on the Connecticut Sun, its season schedule, how you can get tickets, and learn more about the community programs, including the ones I mentioned, please visit ConnecticutSun.com. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit Mason23.com or send an email to hello at Mason23.com. This show was produced engineered, researched, and designed with help and assistance from TJ Tower, Alicia Trichel, Gail McMillan, and Neil Johnson. 
Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.